You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. The Lenten hymn, O Lord, throughout these 40 days. Where did Lent come from and why do Christians celebrate it? Has it always been, as many think it is, perhaps mistakenly, a dark season, a sad season? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be talking about the origins of Lent with Dr. John Bombaro. He's author of a column titled A History of Lent, Lent's Somber Complexion. We will be talking with Dr. Paul Robbie in the conclusion of our three-part series with him on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27, and then we'll make the case for natural marriage with Brad Wilcox, professor of sociology and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. Dr. John Bombaro is special project supervisor at the Naval Chaplaincy School in Newport, Rhode Island. He's author of a column titled A History of Lent, Lent's Somber Complexion. John, welcome back. Thanks a lot, Todd. Why does the church observe Lent? The prevailing reason, I think, emerges from Scripture. Observe Lent suggests following something, or in this case, someone, Jesus. And Jesus says, for example, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, come, follow me. And then later in Matthew, in chapter 16, I think we get more detail when Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This passage becomes important for Lent's rationale and devotion. So notice that right in Matthew 16 that Jesus presents himself as the exemplar. He is self-denying in uh, Philippians chapter 2 fashion, and it commits him to a vocation that results in taking up his cross. And those who are made his disciples through holy baptism, they imitate him because he is the way of salvation. Indeed, he is salvation himself. He embodies the kingdom, its spirit, and he dispenses the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So to imitate him is to be close to him. And Lenten themes are built upon this right there in Matthew 16. A saved life looks like one thing, but it doesn't look like another. You're living one way, but not in this other way. You're forfeiting certain living and embracing life himself. And all of these gospel-laden realities wind up prompting St. Paul to say in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me even as I imitate Christ. And so this is the bedrock of the church's observance of Lent, to be followers of Jesus and to allow the life, the ways, and the disciplines of Christ to enter into our lives. And if I could say one more thing that's worth mentioning, and that's the church's recognition of Jesus's lordship over time. 
the church wanted to put Jesus' imprimatur onto time itself. So almost immediately after his victorious crucifixion and resurrection, the earliest Christians began to determine their own lives by the major events of Jesus' life. So much so that Jesus' life cycle was fused with the calendar. And then you have the calendar being punctuated with major festivals, beginning with Advent and Christmas. It continues with Epiphany, Holy Week, of course. And for the earliest Christians, it climaxed with the Ascension. So interestingly, in an effort to recognize Christ's lordship over time, as well as recognize the church's festivals around a more sanctified point of origin, there was a a 6th century monk that went by the name of Dionysus Exegius, which means the humble or the inferior. And he recalibrated the calendar of his day by basing it on Jesus' nativity. And so in this way, he actually invented the Anno Domini dating, or AD dating. Dionysus had a, he had a really noble goal. He wanted to transfer the fulcrum of time from um, Diocletian, who was that famous, or I should say infamous, 4th century Caesar, who violently persecuted Christians, and he based the calendar on his own birthday. And so we get Dionysus transferring that to the year that she gave birth to the real son of God, Jesus. And so he stripped Diocletian of all dignity, and he clothed the incarnate God with time itself. That was his thinking there. So this innovation was adopted by the church and had practical as well as theological implications, one of which was absorbing the days and weeks into the most significant moment in history, which is Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. So Lent then becomes a property of Holy Week, and so a property of Jesus as his life fills the calendar itself. How do many Christians misunderstand Lent? I think, regrettably, Lent is viewed by many Christians as a killjoy, you know, heavy, weighted, about loss, about putting things away like luxuries, liberties, loves, and usually only for a short bit of time, and then putting on a somber face. And the contrasts are sharp, I think too sharp. You party it up on... Fat Tuesday at Mardi Gras, but come Lent itself, then you load up the sackcloth and the ashes as we drive this requiem procession all the way to Jesus' funeral. So feasting winds up pivoting sharply to fasting. And Lent evokes then these thoughts of dimly lit churches and draped crucifixes, hushed voices, and our lives are darkened by fasting and repentance even on Sundays, sometimes especially on Sundays. And somehow all these disciplines were meant to lead to Jesus at Golgotha, then with Easter, bringing an outlier event disjointed from all the rest, namely the the resurrection. And so Christians have misunderstood Lent as something of a funeral dirge or ecclesial self-flagellation on our way to the three-hill cross with little reflection on the arrangement of the weeks or the driving force behind it, and especially its connection with the resurrection. I take it Lent did not always have the almost exclusively somber tone that it does today. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, it wasn't originally weighted with the, the same somber aspects that we see. In fact, there were periods of time, especially during the days of St. John Chrysostom and Dr. Martin Luther, that extolled the celebratory aspects of Lent and put an emphasis during Lent on the resurrection life that Christ pours into the baptized. 
That is, these two legendary preachers and others, they promoted practicing resurrection life over the mortification of the flesh, although the latter was not neglected and had very important emphasis. But the emphasis on resurrection life, it would pop up again and again throughout church history, and it would wind up giving a more sensible meaning to Lent, which means, after all, spring, the season in which dead things come to life, in which life itself blossoms. What are the origins of Lent? Well, it stems from two converging points. First, there was a brief fast that preceded the Pascha or Passover. So Christians, and we're talking about Christians here, Christians prepared for Easter by fasting, much in the same way that many of our priests and parishioners do today before receiving the sacred body and blood of our Lord Jesus in Holy Communion on Sundays. From this short stint of fasting, Holy Week developed, moving backwards in time through Easter vigil. So moving from Sunday, you would begin fasting and on Saturday or perhaps even before that. And this was that development. So the second contributing factor was a period of preparation that was prescribed for candidates for holy baptism. And their period of preparation wasn't like just one or two days like it was for Christians. It actually took weeks. And so the remainder of Lent developed from this dynamic. But we shouldn't miss the point. Discipleship, catechesis, and the sacraments set the framework for what would become Lent. And Jesus' life, his sayings, his doings were the touchstone for Lent's rationale and the disciplines of Lent. So when these two streams converged, the Christian and the convert, or the ones who would be converted, Lent became this really potent season for disciple-making and disciple-formation, sanctification. Put differently, Lent provided the liturgy that allowed Christians and converts to participate as liturgists ultimately in the Paschal Feast. And one more point that's worth mentioning. The Pascha of the early church commemorated, of course, the historic crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And in fact, Good Friday and the resurrection of our Lord were actually observed as a single festival that was called the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. And what's really cool is that today, the Paschal Triduum bridges the evening of Monday, Thursday to Easter night to form a single observance in the same spirit as the early church, giving us a chance to participate in one of the most ancient and unbroken traditions in Christianity. But going back to their early Pascha, the fasting aspect of this solemnity seems to have been a discipline of not eating from Good Friday through Easter Vigil until you had Mass, till you received Holy Communion on Sunday. So how did this discipline of fasting trigger a controversy that contributed to a change in Lenten's emphasis? Yes. We get this story recorded in Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, where he recounts St. Irenaeus's saying that Christians began arguing over how long the fast extended backwards from Easter. Some people said one day, others said two days, others said more time. Some said you only counted the fast during the daylight hours, others said it was all the consecutive hours, and it, and it became a mess. And all the hubbub was over how one should interpret Jesus' words from Luke chapter 5, where he said, 
The days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. So should the people keep a fast on Good Friday only, or for the time between Jesus' death and his resurrection, amounting to 40 hours? However it may have been, everyone was dealing with the same problem because all churches actually treasured the liturgy of the divine service. And because it was a problem for everyone, it took the decrees from the Council of Nicaea in 325 to quiet the ruckus. And again, all of that fuss was over what Christians were to do about fasting. For converts from paganism, their fast would be significantly longer in form, the second contributing factor that we talked about earlier. And those two things together constitute the origins of Lent. Dr. John Bombaro is our guest. He's author of a column titled A History of Lent, Lent's Somber Complexion. When we come back, we'll spend some time answering a question about that Pascha celebration and its connection to the baptism of catechumens. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Evangelical and Catholic. You're listening to Issues Etc. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's Phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western Civilization, one student at a time. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Dr. John Bombaro is our guest. We're talking about the origins of Lent. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. John, before the break, you were talking about these early Easter celebrations and their connection to uh, the Lent practice, what was their connection to the baptism of catechumens? 
Well, one of the significant features of the Pascha celebration in the early church included the baptism of catechumens on the night of the Easter Vigil, also known as Holy Saturday. Many of our parishes follow the same custom today, as it's one of the most dramatic and symbolically meaningful liturgies of the church year. And I, I encourage all of your listeners, if you haven't been or have observed the Holy Tritium and its movement through Holy Saturday, the Easter Vigil, you must do so. It, it really immerses you in the, uh, the drama of redemption and gives a more fuller expression in the participation of the life of the church and what Christ is doing to save and sanctify us. Some of the things that happened on that night are, for instance, the rededication of the Paschal candle, which is the, the resurrection candle, which is why it's white, and also the baptismal waters, which makes this a really fitting night for holy baptism. In the early church, these baptisms would have been followed by Easter Mass at 3 a.m. So catechesis for converts prepared them for holy baptism and holy communion in the same day, as it were. One is baptized to participate in the Eucharistic feast. And some of the ancient churches, they heightened the drama by creatively utilizing space and architecture. So, for instance, like in Ravenna, the baptistry would be octagonal, evocative of the eighth day or the first day of the new creation, resurrection life. And, and so it would be set architecturally distinct from the church, following baptism in the nude, one would rise from the waters and be clothed in a white robe and join the vigil liturgy with those who ultimately entered the church through holy baptism to commune with and upon the ever-resurrected one, Jesus' body and blood. So remembering that in the first four centuries, the church largely was this underground movement. It had to exercise particular care to scrutinize these prospective adult members for the sake of the safety of the church and the church's own self-preservation. In other words, they, they had fear that moles would come in and expose them and render the community liable to persecution and even extermination. I think it's one of the things we need to keep in mind is that persecution doesn't necessarily cause the church to flourish in some regions like we've seen in North Africa. It can eradicate the church. So this scrutiny period, it actually implied a long session of probation, usually three years of catechesis. And uh, once that was fulfilled, it concluded with a battery of examinations and bouts of fasting in the weeks leading up to the reception into membership by the rite of holy baptism at the Easter Vigil, and then, of course, welcome to the Eucharist on Easter morning. So here we see the future shape of Lent, bound up with baptism, and replete with contrite fasting, but also leading to resurrection life and Holy Communion. So how did more generally that practice and the, didn't that change shape Lent ob observations? Well, you get the Constantinian Edict of Toleration in 313, allowing Christians to worship freely. And then you get the consequent legalization of Christianity. It didn't become an official religion of the empire until about 380 under Theodosius, the, these scrutinizing rigors of catechesis that we just mentioned, they were relaxed since the threat of persecution was gone. But, you know, the church moves really slowly to change, and so it took decades moving us into the 400s to go from three years of catechesis to one year for holy baptism. So 
what had been a, a really arduous period of preparation and examination for adults seeking baptism wound up becoming a normative period for baptisms of all kinds of people, not just possibly threading military age people, but seniors, children, whoever. But it also presented a period of spiritual concentration and discipline for every Christian, since all Christians are called to remember, to embrace, and to live out their baptism, a really great Lutheran emphasis, such that we find in our small catechism. So in other words, the fasting period of scrutinies was no longer a matter of screening for protection, sweating out would-be spies through prolonged observation and trying to purge insincere hypocrites through all these rigorous exams, but it, it transitioned to a devotional period for all the members of the congregation. And so in this way, all of Lent became a season for all Christians and catechumens. How did the fall of Rome shape Lenten observation? Well, it did so profoundly. So just when it looked like good times had come upon the church in the year 380, when Theodosius made Christianity the official religion of the empire, then all of a sudden a whole series of events took place that really shook the church and rocked civilization at that time. And it changed the face of Lent from people you know, seeking resurrection life and trying to participate in that resurrection life to now being more mournful in their complexion. And what happened was this. Rome was sacked by Gothic hordes time and again. So vandals poured down from the north and they overwhelmed southern Europe. And in 410, 455, they invaded Italy and greatly impacted Southern Christianity, and then ultimately leading to the fall of the Roman Empire in 476. The church's bishops convened, and they called for a comprehensive contrition and reformation of life. It was time for the church to repent. They had fear that Jesus was going to remove his lampstand from Southern Europe, and indeed all of Europe, for its waywardness and wickedness. So the weeks that counted backwards from Easter— prior to Ash Wednesday, they were transformed into penitential days rather than people seeking resurrection life after passing through the resurrection waters. As well as that, you get the weeks following Ash Wednesday, they become an obligatory time of fasting and contrition too. So preaching winds up pivoting from this gospel onus of resurrection life, of Easter life, to the ethical expectations of the kingdom of God or in this case, the empire. So Lent became weighted with law. Everyone would join the fast lest God would remove his lampstand from the West. And so the upshot was that the scrutinies that were once reserved for pagan converts were now applied to everyone, and Lent became much more austere. How did Lent look in the medieval period? Well, sadly, in many respects, the decidedly penitential complexion of Lent came to characterize Western communions. So meditations, preaching focused on Christ's suffering and death, not only as the means of salvation, but also to stir sentiments of guilt and culpability. So we find this in the artwork of the period, for example. Nothing worked up guilt and shame quite like the demands of the law. And so laws and ecclesial rules along with 
superstitions proliferated as to what one could do or not do, what they should or should not do. Now, to be sure, the kingdom of God has a Holy Spirit-induced ethic that's concomitant with holiness and righteousness, love and truth. But these dimensions of discipleship, what we would call today the third use of the law, they were impinged upon by a calculus of evaluation, merit and demerit. So you get the scrutinies and the austerities of Lenten disciplines themselves being seen as meritorious, as a, as a form of purgation that garnered God's approval. So purgatory and Lent were paralleled in many ways. And so the positive aspects of living resurrection life were eclipsed by these connotations of repentance, fasting, and asceticism. So simply put, Lent put on an ashen face, and it would remain that way throughout the medieval period. Dr. John Bombaro is our guest. We're talking about the origins of Lent. What did the 16th century reformers do when they encountered Lenten practice? can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the walkout of faculty and staff from the Concordia Seminary St. Louis campus in 1974. If you've ever wondered about Seminex or the walkout and what they were all about, now's your chance to learn more. Pick up the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. You can purchase that at CPH. Visit cph.org slash witness or learn more at our website, witness.lcms.org. Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. If you're looking for a good Lutheran church in Scarsdale, New York, one that has sound teaching based on the Word of God and takes pride in the confessions, look no further than Trinity Lutheran Church in Scarsdale, New York, where every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. we have Bible study and Sunday school, followed by the service at 10 Again, good liturgical confessional worship by the grace of God. Find us at trinityscarsdale.org. Casting Christ's net on the internet. You're listening to Issues Etc. When Martin Luther preached the dedication for the Torgau Church, he asserted that nothing else happened in this house but that our dear Lord speak to us and we respond in prayer, thanksgiving, and praise. Issues Etc. guest Dr. John Pless. The same could be said of Concordia Theological Seminary. This is a place 
where our Lord speaks to us through his word, and we respond in joyful and thankful confession. We therefore invite you to visit our campus, where the word of Christ dwells among us richly. Learn more about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Forming servants in Jesus Christ to teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. ctsfw.edu or 1-800-481-2155. I did not even consider the liberal ecumenical churches since they had sold their birthright for a mess of secular pottage. Indeed, after my conversion at Cornell, I met with the United Church's pastor. I recounted my conversion, then said, you are prostituting your ministry. What do you mean, cried the pastor. My response, your sermons and teachings were nothing but moralism. I might as well have attended the Rotary Club. That's from Dr. John Warren Montgomery, writing in the Wittenberg Trail feature of the Latest Issues Etc. Journal. The Most Scripturally Faithful Theology is the name of his essay. You can read it for free. Go to our website, issuesetc.org. Find the red subscription button on the right-hand side of the page. Click on that, enter your email address, and we will send you the next online Issues Etc. Journal absolutely free. We're talking with Dr. John Bombaro about the origins of Lent. So what did the 16th century reformers, how did they receive Lent? Well, it was a mixed bag, and it's important that we get the lines clear here. The Radical Reformation, including the Zwinglians, which are the forerunners of today's evangelicals, and the Reformed tradition, influenced by John Calvin, they rejected Lent as unbiblical. It was a human contrivance that was hopelessly superstitious, and it was jettisoned, even as it is to this day in large part. The conservative Reformation of the evangelical Catholics, the gospel Catholics, led by Martin Luther, but also you would find it in the Anglican reforms, they retained Lent. Luther, however, was unique in that he reoriented the Lenten fast according to its original purpose and arrangements. So you would fast for six weeks, mounting to 36 fast days, and he was very fastidious to preserve every Sunday for the celebration of Christ's resurrection as the first day of the new week. So Sundays were supposed to sit outside of Lent, and they didn't during the medieval period. Luther helps change that. Preaching, heralding the gospel of Christ and the grace of God to guilty sinners This became part of the sweet relief from within Lent itself, and that happened on Sundays. So Luther's close reading of the Church Fathers showed him that medieval practice was, well, I don't know to put it, much like our own, kind of upside down. Uh, Sundays weren't supposed to be in Lent or observed as Lent. Luther reopened the doors to Lent's pursuit of resurrection life by salvaging Sundays for resurrection people. So... One more point there. Luther's Lenten sermons, you know, throughout the week, not on Sundays, but throughout the week, brought catechetical content and toggled between law and gospel. He was preaching the kingdom expectations, but he was also preaching Christ's salvation, Christ's self-donation. So all would participate in Lent, but no longer for scorekeeping or 
rewriting your purgatory ending, but in the rightful pursuit of godliness and Christic transformation. So yes, repentance and reformation, but in the power of resurrection life that was initiated in the baptismal waters of regeneration. And happily, the Lutheran tradition has preserved much of what Luther brought in the way of reforms, taking us back to the original purposes of Lent. How do we continue to regain the emphasis on the resurrection life in Lent? I think the first thing to do is remember who and what we are now in Christ, whose life and spirit possesses us. The resurrected one not only brings free justification by pure grace, he also unites himself to us in regeneration. And by the Holy Spirit, he desires to have us conform to his likeness, to imitate him, to be imitations of him, at least in this sanctifying way, and as Christians imaging forth the likeness of God. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the goal of Lent? And it's not merely to make us feel bad beholding the crucified Son of God or to put off unsavory practices or habits just for a few weeks. Rather, the entire season, if it patterns itself after the likeness of Christ, should be engaged not in our own strength or effort, but synergistically in step with the Holy Spirit. We should be striving for and in resurrection life in the here and now, moving through Good Friday, again, into remembrance of our baptism in true identity and firmly established in resurrection life. And that needs to be made manifest, particularly in the preaching and a better understanding of the texts that are selected through the season. Now, perfectionism is impossible, and this is why it remains a penitential season. And as Luther so rightly recognized, since we are ever on this side of death, simul justus et peccator, we need the Sundays of Lent to relieve us of our failings and our guilt, our sin and transgression, no matter how hard we're trying. Uh, no matter how hard it is that we're participating with the Spirit, we're always going to be failing, we're always going to be sinning. So how do we regain emphasis on resurrection life in Lent? Do your Lenting during the week. Embrace the transformation into the likeness of Christ with catechetical midweek preaching guiding you along the way, and then come to church on Sunday and feast and feast upon the resurrected one, Jesus Christ, and receive there the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. So I think that if we unshackle Sundays from Lent, well, we'll make resurrection life great again. Finally, with about a minute, what do you make of the popularity of Lenten observation among some evangelicals. There have been several articles written about it over the last couple of years. Well, I think this is a good thing and encourages them to take a look at what the theological rationale is there. And my hope would be that it would drive evangelicals to a reconsideration of the liturgy, not as a style of worship, but as a theology of worship. The fact matters, we, we were created to image forth the likeness of God. That's a liturgical responsibility. It's a liturgical vocation to engage in doxology, the praise and the glorification of God. Of course, we, that vocation is, is destroyed in the fall, 
But salvation is all about, again, making us, making it possible for us to be liturgists and so participate in the liturgy itself, which ultimately is God's activity that he does in and through the church and particularly its ministerium, but calling everyone into that great dynamic to participate in his praise, in thanksgiving and in reception, in the life of faith. So I think it's a good thing that evangelicals are embarking upon this But at the same time, it should not be divorced from what has proceeded. If they really want to know what the Reformation was about, then they need to go back and consider Luther and the trajectory of Lutheranism. The the fact of the matter is, we can interpret the happenings of the Reformation as a liturgical happening. It pivoted around the sacrament of what we would call holy absolution, or the sacrament of penance. It had to do with spiking a gospel sacrament with the law and saying that we would be the ones that would provide satisfaction. But Luther saw that Christ provides satisfaction, for only he is the satisfactory one before the Father, and that with repentance, the obligation is to dispense the forgiveness of sins. Luther brought back the onus in that sacrament upon holy absolution. So my hope would be that evangelicals would, as they flirt with Lent, see its liturgical values, go back to the time of the Reformation and see that there is a priesthood for the church, even though we be a royal priesthood of believers, that royal priesthood of believers has a priesthood, And they are the duly called and ordained servants of Christ who facilitate the liturgia, the liturgy of Christ, by which he gives himself in the word and the sacraments, in in true preaching and the uh, dispensation of the sacraments for our salvation and sanctification. So, yeah, I think that's what I would stand there, is that if evangelicals are going to embrace Lent, don't do it as a merely faddish thing but go all the way and come to understand the liturgical dogmatics that are behind Lent, which will give you a truer understanding of the Church and what God is doing in and through His Holy Church. Dr. John Bombaro is Special Project Supervisor at the Naval Chaplaincy School in Newport, Rhode Island. He's author of a column titled A History of Lent, Lent's Somber Complexion. You can read it on the Talk On Demand archives page at issueztc.org. John, thank you. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. When we come back, we will conclude our three-part series on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27 with Dr. Paul Robbie, author of The Issues, Etc., Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with Let Him Ask God, Temptation's Path, The Implanted Word, No Partiality, and The Royal Law. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. 
Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13-27. through Grace, Faith, Scripture, and Christ Alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu. CUChicago.edu. Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713-855-2681.